I can't do much waggling on the tea because we're going to run out of time. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Um, Given that framework that we've been talking about, uh, there's the material that I'm trialling. I did it at Word Alive and it went down quite well. And I think I'm, so I'm trialling it around now to see whether it does connect with people. One of my favourite um, uh, influences is a, a missiologist, a guy called uh, Johan Bavink, who was a missiologist in Indonesia. And he said basically this, that he knew a lot about world religions. And he said, at the end of the day, do you know what? People seem to struggle with the same kinds of issues. They're, they're these, what he calls magnetic points. Five magnetic points that all human beings wrestle with and that you can see in philosophy and religion and worldview. And what, I, what I've been trying to do is to say these points are what it means to be human and your non-Christian friends and family who have got no time for Jesus I believe they are struggling with these points. So if we can understand what these points are, we can work out how do we connect Jesus to those points. Because my interest is we try and talk about Jesus in a way that is not what I call a gear crunch. I went to see the football this afternoon. Oh, who scored a goal? Do you know what? Jesus scored a goal for you. That kind of, <laughs> that kind of rubbish stuff, yeah? Now, of course, you know, of course, and again, I think people only become Christians by God sovereignly uh, opening people's hearts. It's not about technique, but I do think there are more effective ways of evangelism than others. I know that in uh, the next three hours, we will be going to watch West Ham United play. As the crowds stream through, there's a man with a megaphone shouting out Bible verses. People, if people become Christians through that, praise the Lord. Do I think that is an effective evangelism strategy for 2019? No. And I think I can say that. So what we're trying to do is to say, how do we, how do we engage with the people where they are at to talk about Jesus? Just as Paul did in Acts 17. Because the, the thing in Acts 17 is Paul says at the beginning, I wandered around your objects of worship. What are the objects of worship that your friends and family, or yourself even, in your discipleship, are attracted to? And how do we get Jesus into that? So, five magnetic points. So we're going to very quickly go through them. I'm going to give some examples. I'll get you to do a bit of group work. And we're going to finish about five past one. I've had five minutes grace. The first, Bavink says, is this. He calls it totality. A way to connect. He says, human beings have a sense of totality that we're we're individuals but we're connected to something much bigger. And we know that we're not alone as islands but we belong to something else. And with that comes attention. On the one hand, we realise as human beings we are insignificant. On the other hand, when we're connected to something bigger, we believe that we're part of something huge, cosmic. We're connected to something that gives us great significance as well. And Bavin says this tension between insignificance and significance is we struggle with it all the time. We crave connection to things, to people. We feel abandoned after we've experienced it and we crave for it again and again. Let me give an example. Now, this was 2012. In 2012, Facebook had its one billionth user in 2012. This was the ad campaign. 
um, I'm going to have to just speak it. It's more kind of, you know, obviously much more visual, but chairs. Chairs are made so that people can sit down and take a break. Anyone can sit on a chair, and if the chair is large enough, they can sit down together and tell jokes or make up stories or just listen. Chairs are for people, and that's why chairs are like Facebook. Doorbells, airplanes, bridges... These are things people use to get together so they can open up and connect about ideas and music and other things that people share. Dance floors, basketball, a great nation. A great nation is something people build so they can have a place where they belong. The universe. It's vast and dark and it makes us wonder if we are alone. So maybe the reason we make all of these things is to remind us that we are not. Now, I guarantee Mark Zuckerberg has not been reading my missiologist friend. Yeah? Why are we so interested in tracing our family trees? Because people who feel rootless and not connected, they want to be connected to something that gives them an identity, something bigger than themselves. Why is it that some of us got up early this morning to watch the rugby together? We could have watched it by ourselves, but there's something about being together. Why is it that we want to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow when after the Manchester bombing we want to do it in a stadium with other people? Because there's an innate sense of connection that we have and when we lose it, we want it again. Loneliness is a massive problem in our society and people crave connection. Now, in in groups of two or three, just very quickly, how do your non-Christian friends and family, how do they show that magnetic point? How do they show that need for connection of insignificance and insignificance in groups? Just for a minute. Okay, let's come back together. Let's come back together. Now, we haven't got time to to feedback now, but here's the thing. The the issue with sporting music events is that they're fun, but they don't last, and people get that. I mean, you know, I, I know that if West Ham score this afternoon, there'll be a euphoric cheering for two minutes, but then the same people who were cheering together are probably, I've seen, you know, I've seen a number of West Ham's fight amongst them, fans fight among themselves over viewing issues or not being able to see properly. And certainly by the time you get to the tube, you're back in your anonymity, even though you were celebrating together in this big kind of uh, uh, organic hole. British culture is, at the moment, totally fragmented. There's no community, pubs are closing, Men's working clubs have gone. Where do people meet each other? Loneliness is a massive issue. People overwork, they have no time for community. People move so often, no one knows their neighbours. Many of us would have lived in flats where the 
feet of the people upstairs, we've got no idea who they are. Now, surely the church's community is a massive gap in the secular market. A genuine, loving, trustworthy community, which I'm sure you are here. John C., yeah? Yep. <laughs> is a big deal for many who long for community. Second point, norm, a way to live. People have a vague sense of rules to be obeyed. We know that they're moral standards which come from the outside to which we must adhere. That there's, a, there's an appreciation of this, that life is a, is a kind of a, a conversation between law and reality. People chafe against, they react against the law, but they want to be enveloped by it at the same time. Now, how do we see this? Here are some examples. Um, well, yeah, this, this is an example. Some, uh, again, these are examples by, by students as well. Um, we, we li- I mean, we live in a very puritanical culture in that sense, and that's not, I mean, I love the Puritans. So when I mean puritanical, I mean this idea that, you know, is massively moralistic. People don't just want to feel good about themselves, they want others to look at them and see themselves to be good. Here's a student who said this to me. I was in our local coffee shop the other day and a lady walked in pushing a buggy. As she walked up to the counter, she asked, are your straws paper or plastic? Fortunately, the owner said paper, at which the lady said, I'm so glad I can drink here. To be low plastic, vegan, socially aware is the new Phariseeism. It's driven by the need to feel good and worthy about oneself. Well, think about this. This is a great example. Work appraisal systems. Listen to this. Like many secular employers, we officially laud innovation and risk-taking and say that we want our employees to be free to be themselves, express themselves and work in a way that suits them. That's what we are told each week we are to aspire to. However, every year, our appraisal system insists on evaluating each person on a static grid of numerical scores that makes no room for nuances in job descriptions or personality. Everyone must work in exactly the same way in order to get a good score. The appraisal score then determines your pay for the next 12 months. The practical upshot is that we spend the whole year in a state of tension between following the rules of individualism and the rules of the appraisal statistics. How do we, I mean, how do we kind of deal with that idea that, that there are rules and we, we want to be under rule, but in the same, same sense we don't? Or, I'm going to go for it. This is another, this is a student, so it's not my words. My gut instinct is that there are broadly two moral secular outlooks the conservative Brexiteer alt-right and the liberal Remainer progressive. You have to try and hit both, but they're very different types of fish. The former, the conservative Brexiteer alt-right, are against moral change and so stand against the changes. The gospel appeal for them is that God never changes. His morality is solid, dependable, unchanging. The latter, the liberal Remainer progressive, They are anti-Christian because they're wanting to change the moral order and even though they're often anti-gospel, the deeper reasons are right. Helping the marginalised, the poor, victims. Me Too was an amazing and wonderful against sexual abuse. The pro-gay and pro-trans lobby are passionate about people who feel trapped, scared and unable to say anything. 
I think the compassion of Jesus for the outcast and the courage to stand against the conservatives of his day is exactly where they are at. His morality is real, not just rules for rules' sake, which progressives so hate. So they think Christianity is conservative, but Jesus was in one sense the very opposite. Now how do you talk about Jesus to those different types of people? We contextualise to the people that we are talking to. Okay, deliverance. Is there a way out? Well, this is a common phenomenon. We know something is not right with the world. There's finitude, brokenness, wrongdoing. The problem of suffering and death confronts us. And so we ask, how are we going to be delivered? Who delivers us? Can we do it? What are we to be delivered from? Again, here's some examples. I've had a lot of conversations with both Christians and non for whom sickness and death is their main anxiety point. One I think of because his dad and sister had cancer, so he may well get it as well. Another who had a heart attack and lost a baby in a miscarriage. Another because she grew up in a family where her sister was in and out of hospital. For these people, Satan is always at them, convincing them they're going to die soon. Every cough or lump or pain is dreadful. I think there's more people like this that we realise because they're unlikely to tell you that's how they feel out of shame. Or someone else, I had a long conversation with another dog walker recently who was struggling to come to terms with the death of a loved one and has dabbled with spiritualist things. When I spoke of the hope of the resurrection, they responded, but how can we know? If only someone could come back from the other side to tell us for certain. The ignorance of Christ is stunning from a well-read urbanite. Or a minister friend of mine, a guy called John James, who some of us will know, who is having to disciple 30-year-olds in his congregation who cannot deal with life and so are spending hours and hours playing Clash of Clans. These are 30-year-old family men but who don't want to deal with stuff so the distraction is just to play the game. That's how they're seeking their deliverance. Again, just quickly, in your groups, how, how are your non-Christian friends and family? Where, how, how, where, what are they seeking deliverance from? Unless they think the world is absolutely perfect, but what are they seeking deliverance from and how do they think it's going to be achieved? Just in your groups. Okay, let's come back together again. This next one's my favourite. Destiny. I think this is just so true of of me and of other people as well. 
Is there a way we control? Although we know ourselves to be players in the world, we have a nagging sense that we're also participants in someone else's world. This creates a tension between freedom and boundedness. Bavink has this great line. Isn't this true of so many of us? We both lead and undergo our lives. We lead, yes, I can do it. And then we realise we're in control, something else is in control. Now, I think we see this all the time. This is my favourite illustration. I've, I've, um, I've used this to write a longer, much longer piece on this. This is what one student wrote to me, uh, giving an example of this. This is someone who's working in an office. You must never say the phones are quiet. When I first started, I thought this was a bit of a joke, but it's considered deadly serious. You do not say that, the phones are quiet. I've been interested in trying to talk it with some colleagues because they're clear that they have no belief in any sort of higher power or are perfectly rational people. At the same time, saying the phones are quiet will result in something, someone making said phones busy and unbearable. We simultaneously have no control over how our phone shifts are going to go. You'll just have a day like that and are responsible for our own, but are responsible for our own and others' bad shifts because you said it was quiet and that made it busy. One of the interesting things about this power behind phone calls is that it is clearly malevolent. There's no good power responsible for quiet shifts or pleasant customers, just bad ones. Now, I thought this was just a bit of a joke, but then we had a guy who's becoming a police, uh, was a policeman, who said this is exactly the case. On, on shift, you never say it's a quiet shift tonight. You say it's Q, you use the letter rather than the word. And then when you looked, this is everywhere. Hands up if you've worked in an environment where that is the case, where you see this. There you go. In our disenchanted world. It's true. And people get very upset. I even found peer-reviewed journals that were, now I think it was an April Fool in the Royal College of Surgeons doing a, a qualitative survey about whether staying quiet made the shift busy or not and I think it was April Fool but other journals have referenced this as being a proper study. <laughs> I think it was the Royal Vet- Veterinary uh, Society. Destiny. I mean it's a classic, you know, um, X Factor, Britain's Got Talent you know, it's my destiny to be on this stage. I was meant to be here. Everything in my life has led to this. And then after two seconds, the buzzer's pressed and that's it. I think this destiny thing is very true and that's where the superstition stuff comes from. Finally, a higher power. Is there, is there a way above or a way beneath? Is there a greater reality? And sometimes this is always conceived as a, a superior power. It's a sense of the transcendent. But who is it? Or what is it? I came across something the other week. It was on ITV News. It's a new phenomenon. It's called champing. Who knows what champing is? Champing. Champing. There are many churches at the moment in the UK that haven't got anyone going to them. They're derelict buildings. And champing are churches who are um, allowing people to come and camp being chapel, chapel and camping, to come and experience sleeping in a church overnight. And you might think, well, that, what, what has that got to do with anything? Well, one white middle-class family told the reporter that they wanted their children to wake up in the morning to, to the sun coming through stained glass because of the feeling it would give them, a sense of the transcendent. 
champion. I don't think as human beings we live very well with this, that idea that above us is only sky. And this search for the transcendent is everywhere. Because, and we know why that's the case theologically, because we've been talking about it for the last hour and a half. We're made in God's image. And it has to find itself, that it has to find an outlet somewhere. And yes, it's idolatrous, and you think, what on earth? Waking up to stained glass light? But it's that sense that we're not just the sum of our parts. We're not just the $12.60 that if you added up, if you sold the materials that make my body, that's what I would cost. We know that we're more than that. And again, we show that in loads of different ways. So they are the magnetic points. Now here's the, th- here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Gospel of Jesus, just, just quickly, last passage we're going to look to today. Look, look, come to one, one, 1 Corinthians 1. I've done this so often now, I've forgotten who I've done it for. You've probably heard this before, but I found this so helpful, especially if anything else I've said this morning has just kind of passed you by. 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Very quickly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that confronts culture. Whatever the world says about its hopes and dreams, the gospel is a big, fat no. It confronts. Again, I've talked about it in the book, I've said it elsewhere, I've only done one programme, there's a programme on Radio 4 called Beyond Belief, I did it a few years ago, I was the fundamentalist Christian, it was, it was on the subject of hell, I've done some writing on hell in the past, I, you know, I, need, I need to get out more, I know. Um, and they wanted a fundamentalist Christian, fundamentalist Christian, me, a lady who lectured theology at a well-known university, who believed in hell but it had nothing to do with the Bible, and a, a Catholic journalist. Here's the thing. They were appalled that I believed in the idea of judgment. What, you believe that God's going to judge people, there's going to be a judgment day? Daniel, you are medieval. You're living in a different century. They were offended by my belief in judgment. But here's the interesting thing. They were more offended when I talked to them about grace. What, you believe that someone on their deathbed could believe in Jesus and that they could be saved and not face judgment? They're offended by judgment and they're offended by grace. That's the foolishness of the cross. Yeah, we sing a song that we worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. And the gospel, thank you sister, and the gospel, <laughs> the gospel is, is always going to confront. It is foolishness. But here is the thing, and this is the thing that I think we need to hear as Bible-believing Christians. The gospel not only confronts, the gospel connects. Why does Paul, in that passage I read out, why does he take time 
to talk about two different groups of people, two ethnic groups, Jews and Greeks. Jews demand signs. Their, their aspirations for culture are about power and signs. Greeks are not Jews. They don't look for signs. They look for wisdom. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we could say, yeah, but it doesn't matter what other people believe. We just preach Christ crucified and the louder we say it, the better. But no, Paul distinguishes these two groups. Jews demand signs. They have a cultural narrative, a a social imaginary, a, a, a story about what they are looking for. And Greeks look for something else. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Great, the gospel's a stumbling block. Foolishness to Gentiles, yes, we need to be foolish. But to those whom being, uh, who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, look, verse, second half of verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Whoa, Paul sold out to the felt needs gospel here. You mean Jews who are looking for power? Paul now says Jesus is power. Greeks who are looking for wisdom, Jesus is wisdom. Yes, in precisely the opposite way that they expect because a criminal crucified on a cross is not what Jews and Greeks were looking for but the gospel connects as well as confronts. It's a message that confronts and a message that connects. It's a message that subverts the stories of the world, but it's a message that fulfills. It's a message that says, you are foolishly worshipping an unknown God, but what you believe in ignorance, I am now going to proclaim to you. And our hope is not in a what, but a who. We offer not simply a philosophy or a worldview, we offer a person. We offer the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what one writer says, Helmut Tillicher. Jesus Christ too is calling to us, saying the same words. He's searching behind the bushes and calling, man, my brother and sister, where are you? That is what God is calling men and women. That, through our witness, that is what God is saying to people who know God, who are suppressing the truth. What have you done with me? Who do people say that I am? That's why our job is to present people the magnetic person, Jesus Christ. Um, Yaroslav Pelikan, he's a church historian, memorable name. Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of the Western church for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Jesus, he's still very much involved in our cultural institutions, the, thing that we, the things that we hold dear, the things that I still think are part of what it means to be part of Western culture. And Jesus is part of that. And we need to, be, we need to say that. Look, friends, our job, hurtling towards the end here, is to do two things. Again, it's a bit of an annoying way of remembering it, but I hope it will be a bit of an earworm for you. We're to do two things in our witness we are to show how appealing Jesus Christ is. And we're to show how appalling idolatry is. Appealing, appalling. Get it? Yeah? Both at the same time. Scientists in this room, they found the black hole a few months ago. 
Does anyone know the technical term for if a human being fell into a black hole? The technical scientific term. Spaghettification. Spaghettification. In love, our job as Christians in talking to other people about Jesus Christ is that conversion is about being spaghettified. It's about realising that we cannot serve two masters. We either serve Jesus or we serve things that are going to kill us and Jesus will give us life. And that point where we reach that point when people are spaghettified in that sense, we make Jesus more appealing and we make idols more appalling. Now, look, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, here's the thing and we don't have time for it now but I want you to take away these handouts because do you know what? Those magnetic points that we talked about, totality, norm, deliverance, destiny, higher power, Jesus is the answer to all of those things. I'll give you one example. Now look, I could just say to someone, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to turn from your sin and you, uh, you're not going to go to hell and Jesus is going to be great for you, become a Christian. Now, kind of that's true, but how do we connect in a way that are, are where people are at? The people who are going, who are so involved in a pride march or a stadium experience or struggling with a work appraisal system or, are, or are, who, who, who want to show that they are morally virtuous. My job is what we're trying to do is to show how Jesus meets the specifics of those situations. Paul walks around the objects of worship and he makes the connection and he confronts. I just don't think we're, I generally speaking, this is a generalisation, conservative Christians are great at the confrontation. We don't do the connection very well. We're worried that if we're, the, we're, we're worried that we're going to be, you know, pandering to people's felt needs. Paul doesn't have that problem in Corinthian, in, in, when he's writing to Corinth, when he's walking around in Athens. Here's just one example. Let's, let's take that first one, totality. The idea of connection. To someone who thinks that they need connection but they feel significant and insignificant at the same time, what do we say? What does a Christian say about that? We offer people Jesus. We say that human beings are made in God's image and we're insignificant because we're only images but we're significant because we're images of God. And we're connected because literally Adam, Adam, Adam means from the earth. Of course we're connected. And so it's important. This is why Christians, we are interested in the environment. We are interested in stewarding, stewarding our, our resources well. But something's gone wrong. Why do we want to be connected to this world? Because the Bible says that the, this is a world that is perishing. But we do want to be connected. We want to be connected not to something but to someone. We want to be connected to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And you know what? That will mean dying to yourself. It will mean being kind of absorbed into something bigger, but without losing your individuality. It's about dying to self. It's about being raised to eternal life. It's about having communion with God. You seek communion and you're looking for it. And it's community. It's finding that now in the church. Now, I could just have said, yeah, believe in Jesus and join a church. But for people who are, 
who are, who are kind of living their lives in a way that they're searching for connection. How do we tell the gospel story in a way that's really attractive? We are preaching Christ crucified. We have to. We have to get people to turn around. They have to repent. And yet, how do we paint that picture? That's why theology is so important. That's why knowing the Christian worldview is so important. And you can do that for all the magnetic points. Now, as we finish, I say this. We've talked about the magnetic points. We've talked about Jesus, the magnetic person. And here's the thing for you guys at Globe, both individually and as a church. You are to be magnetic. Just think about, a lot of our focus this morning has been on how do we talk about the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. But those influences, those magnets that pull people in different directions are pulling on us in our discipleship as well. One of the things that I try to say is that every week the job of John T and Trevor and the other elders is that you've been doing God's work in the world and every week you're coming to gather together and you're tired, you're wounded, you're demagnetised because it's hard out there and John T's job and Trevor's job is to help the body and the other elders is to help the body self-build, self-grow. The globe is like a medical army tent in the middle of London and every week you're being bandaged up and you're being fed up, not fed up, but fed up to be sent out to do the calling that God has given you in your vocations. That's why gathering together is so important because if you stay out there by yourselves you will quickly become demagnetised. You need to be part of a community of other Christians which is then connected to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is, I know, you know, the church gets such a bad press, but the church is the closest thing we have to the new heaven and the new earth now. The church is, well, this is how one writer, in the building site, in the new heaven and new earth that God is building now, because Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that, the local church is the show home that's already been built. There's a lot of work that's going on, but the church is a show home. Now, how do we display that? It's such an amazing apologetic. So, just as we close, I'm just going to read through these magnetic points again. I want you to think about your own life and your life as a church. Totality. How might you be being pulled back into thinking that connects us that actually the most comprehensive thing in your life or your identity is not Jesus and his kingdom, but maybe other things. Maybe you've put too much stress in your ethnicity or your gender or your sexuality or your nation. How are you still having to guard yourself from being pulled in another direction? Or deliverance, perhaps you think you can save yourself by your works or your routine. Perhaps you think your quiet time will save you. Perhaps you look to other things for deliverance. Perhaps, like many of us, you think that you are a victim. You think that everything is someone else's fault and not your own. You think that God isn't in control, or you think, worse, that God's got it in for you. You haven't seen God's fatherly care, even if it's discipline you might as well believe in a malevolent force rather than a loving Heavenly Father. 
and a higher power, maybe your time, priorities and patterns of life, how do you show that you love other things more than God? And one of the things about doing things together is that we can sit under God's word and every week we can be magnetised, remagnetized, reorientated and we can meet Jesus. So we can offer other people Jesus and we can give hope to a world that is often very hopeless. You've got a very significant calling um, individually and uh, as a church and I hope you'll think about these things. People ask, what's my dream for the book? My, my dream is that people would read this and they'd want to get together once every couple of months and just talk about their own lives and say, how might we put some of these things into practice? How might we engage with where people are at? Now, to do that, you have to know non-Christians. They have to trust you to be able to tell you, tell you the deep things of their lives. And so I hope, and I know this will be the case, that as much as you're doing things together to strengthen yourselves as Christians, you're getting out there into the world and you're, you've got non-Christian friends and family who you want to engage with. And how we get that balance is a great question and I know London is so complicated and you know, we need to think about these things really hard. So I'm going to come to God in prayer and then that will be um, lunch, I think. Lord, uh, we thank you that you have saved us not because we are lovely, because we are not, but you've loved us because you've loved us. You've showered our grace, your grace upon us. We were dead, Lord, and you've made us alive in Christ. And we've tasted that fount of living water. We've met the Lord Jesus Christ and he's such a, an amazing person. He's our Lord and our Saviour. And Lord, so often though, we're not excited about it. We're more excited about sporting events than we are about talking about Jesus, especially to other people. Lord, give us the words to say that we wouldn't just kind of treat everyone in a kind of an abstract way, but we'd really want to listen to where people are coming from, their hopes and dreams and desires. And yes, we would want to confront them with Jesus Christ, but in a way that also connects with them as well. To do that, Lord, we need to know other people, we need to trust them, they need to trust us. Give us the words to say, help us work on these things, to be able to offer Jesus in a very natural way. Lord, we know that so many of our friends and family, so many people in our nation are trying to lick up stagnant water when there's a fount of living water that we can show them to. We pray for ourselves, we pray for, I pray for uh, the church here at the Globe, pray for uh, the, the leaders, that they would be helping that body self-grow. We pray, Lord, that we would be giving glory to God in all the things that you've called us to do and that we would know that we need to do this together, that every week we can be sitting under your word, being bandaged up, being sent out to be light in a very dark world. Thank you for our time uh, this morning. Thank you, Lord, for all the good gifts that you give to us. Thank you for food and uh, laughter and sports and uh, relaxing with one another. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the best seeker. Amen.